And uh, as you're seated, however you access your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in Mark uh, chapter 9 is where we are today. And uh, we've been journeying through uh, this book of Mark and learning about who Jesus is, these pictures, this understanding, uh, learning about who he was as a person and all these kind of stories that are coming together to help us get this beautiful firsthand picture of Jesus Christ. Um, we probably all have people that we have met in our lives, like from a distance, and we get to understand and know them or know about them. And I, I think sometimes we've done that with Jesus, right? We've, we've read the Gospels, we've read stories, we've heard stories, and we kind of know Jesus from a distance. And I don't know about you, but studying through this book of Mark has really helped me draw even closer to Jesus was as a person, understanding who he is, what he's about, and understanding him on a deeper level, feeling like I'm getting to know him very personally and intimately as we go through that. And I think that was a big part of why Mark wrote this book. Uh, we're, we're kind of going into part three of the book now. Part, part one, the first four chapters dealt with the, the person of Jesus, who he was, kind of this introduction, understanding his divinity and how he was really God in the flesh, kind of some life-changing, earth-shattering truths about this person of Jesus. And then the, the next four chapters dealt with his power, his demonstrated power, how we were beginning to see him heal the sick, deal with issues, perform these miracles that just people had never seen before, and the authority that he brought people had never understood before. And that, that ended kind of in chapter 8. Now as we move into chapter 9, these next four chapters of Mark, we're going to start experiencing some of the incredible teachings of Jesus. These next four books are uh, chapters in this book are filled with some amazing truths and wisdom that Jesus pours out. Uh, he's going to talk about all kinds of topics, all, use all kinds of different teaching techniques to get the point across that things are not the same. The religious norm is not what we were called to. I remember growing up, I had two different Sunday school teachers uh, that I remember as a teenager. We would go to church on Sunday before this service, and we would have a small group time, our youth group would. And I, in ninth grade, I had this teacher named Mr. Cook. I can still remember it. Don't, I don't know him beyond that year. I just know his name was Mr. Cook, and it's uh, generic enough if I use it and somebody sees it on Facebook, they're not going to know who it is. But Mr. Cook was one of the worst teachers I ever had in my life. Like, this is what he would do. He would show up to a group of, like, seventh eighth graders, I think I was actually in middle school, not ninth grade, seventh, eighth graders, we would sit in, a, in these rows in this room, and he would take the leader's guy that he had, and he would sit down, and he would look down at it, never look up, and he would just start to read in a very monotone voice over and over again. And you can imagine, like that would be boring today, like whatever age we are today, with his seventh and eighth graders, like after about 45 seconds of that, we were like, we, we got to do something else. Like, what's going on? Just, but every week, he would drone on and on and on. And I honestly, I can't tell you a thing. I don't remember a thing that he taught. I do remember that there was a plastic plant in the back corner that we would slowly, like, tear the leaves off of and do stuff and mess with the people. Beside, and by the end of the year, like, there were no leaves left on that little fake tree. That's all I remember about that year. Like, there was no teaching that I felt like I absorbed that year. But my senior year of high school... I had a teacher named Mr. Stretch. And Mr. Stretch, if, if Mr. Cook was over here, Mr. Stretch was way over here. Every Sunday, I was drawn to come to his class. Because here's what he did. He would take the Bible, 
and as a as a senior in high school, like this was maybe one of the first few times I really, really wanted to like, man, this has got something unique for me. He would make it understandable and then relatable. Like every week I'd be like, dude, like that was in the Bible. And I would walk out and be like so overwhelmed with a truth that I could actually think about that week and try to move. And I, I think... Mr. Stretch's teaching probably impacted me, who I am as a teacher today, because of the influence he had on my life. And I can look back, and there are so many times I remember things he said my senior year that still are in my mind today. Like, you know, it's not just about forgiving. You have to, it's not about just being forgiven. You have to forgive. These little sayings that he would always put into our heads. Mr. Cook was was not a good example. Mr. Stretch was an amazing example. And what Jesus does in these next four chapters is he is putting on display what it means to be this great and incredible teacher. He's going to use parables, object lessons, personal anecdotes, debates, arguments, and lecture to make sure he's communicating what it means to follow him and to bring the kingdom of God near. Now, I want to tell you, we don't have time over the next few weeks to go through every teaching that is in the book of Mark or, or in all of, of the Bible, what we're going to do is we're going to hit some of the major ones, some of the key ones that help us understand who Jesus is and what he was teaching. And today we're going to start in chapter 9, and we're going to take a look at a teaching of Jesus that helps us understand a concept of what it means to be great, to be great. This term, greatness, especially when it comes to describing people, is often equated to two things, power and accomplishment. If somebody's great, they either got a lot of power or a lot of accomplishments. Primarily, they got both. They got power and accomplishment. And when we look back on people we might describe as great leaders, we often point to how many battles they won, how much territory they ruled, how many obstacles they overcome, or how many enemies they defeated. Just think about this list for a minute. Think about Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar. I mean, he was called Alexander the Great, right? I mean, he must have been great. Napoleon Bonaparte, William the Conqueror. All these were renowned for their ability to expand a kingdom through military domination. And then you got guys like King Louis XIV, known as the Sun King, Augustus of Rome, Queen Victoria of England, who were known not just for their military expansion, but for their cultural and economic prosperity and growth. The list could go on and on. If you do a Google search of great leaders, at the top of the list are people known for power, conquest, prosperity, or long reigns. By this definition of greatness, it's nothing like Jesus. I mean, think about it for a minute. He, wouldn't, he doesn't fit any of this. He lived 33 years. His ministry only lasted about three years. The Gospels follow about three years of his life. Just to put that in comparison, Louis the, the 14th reigned for 72 years in France. He did not, Jesus did not overthrow a government. He didn't conquer lands. He did not reshape economic systems to gain prosperity for his inhabitants. Although he had a large following, most of them abandoned him at the first sign of real trouble. He was easily arrested and killed by a little-known Roman governor that had little to no historical impact. He didn't have this great uh, battle with some Roman general, and we have these military maneuvers that we study of Jesus. There's none of that. There is simply a man best known for loving and serving the poor, healing the sick, teaching with wisdom. There's also the fact that he overcame death in the grave, but we'll get to that in a few chapters when we get there. It's a simple man, a simple story known for simply loving and serving. 
So with all this as a backdrop, I want us to hear today exactly what Jesus thought about what it meant to be great. Because he gets asked this question. And he gives a very countercultural teaching that has had lasting impact to even today. So before we jump into nine, let's just make sure we got background on where we're going and where Jesus has been. If you've been with us in this series, you know Jesus had just come off of feeding 4,000 people with just a few loaves and fishes. Last week we looked, he got into the boat and he was with his disciples and they were arguing over who's not going to eat dinner because all they had was one piece of bread. They had totally forgotten who Jesus was and they were just sitting there arguing and arguing and arguing and Jesus rebukes them for their forgetfulness and he reminds them that, hey guys, put away your dull minds, your hard hearts, your deaf ears and your blind eyes and open up and pay attention to what's going on because something amazing is happening around you. And then we see the disciples start to get it. I mean, later on in that chapter, Peter identifies Jesus as the Messiah for the first time, and now they are following him and starting to wonder what Jesus is going to do next. We kind of see a shift in their attitude here from Mark 8 to Mark 9, and then something amazing happens in Mark 9. If you've got your Bibles, we'll look at Mark 9, chapter 2. If not, it'll be on the screen. You can follow there. It says this, Mark 9, verse 2. After six days, so this was about a week after they had just had, Jesus had told them, why are you forgetting me, all that kind of stuff. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. But that's not a word we use very often, right? I mean, you don't walk out and be like, aha, you're transfigured today. You look beautiful. Like, that's not typically what we understand. It basically means he almost became unrecognizable. His figure was transitioned in such a way that you're like, I'm not sure that's even a human in front of me anymore. That'd be the best way to describe it, almost an unrecognizable, yet you knew it was Jesus, but you're not sure what he was anymore. He was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, and no one on earth could bleach them. And they appeared to them, Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. That's a pretty cool moment right? And then Peter shows up. And Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, is it good that we are here? Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for he was terrified. Yet he did say something anyway. And, on a, and it says, then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone there but Jesus alone. And they were coming down from the mountain. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matters to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead might mean. All right, you talk about a moment of greatness. I mean, Jesus is lit up like a light show. I mean, something amazing is happening in front of these three disciples. Two of the monumental figures from Jewish history appear beside Jesus, and they just start chatting with each other. This is a great moment. A huge moment. I mean, one of these that you're just once, probably not for most of us, even once in a lifetime moment, just something spectacular that you realize this man is something different, something great than I will ever know. And I love what Peter does here. He's like, I don't know what to do, so should I just build you some tents? I mean, it's kind of, but that's what they would do. Like, he was actually hearkening back to Old Testament, like, maybe this is God showing up. And what they did in the Old Testament was they built a tent of meeting to, like, meet with God. I don't know what to do or what to say, so I'm just going to blabber on and on, and maybe I should build you guys some tents. And Jesus is like, no, 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 don't build tents. 
And as this experience comes to a close, Jesus does something very interesting. I mean, just think about it. Peter, James, and John had been with Jesus and these two amazing figures from the Old Testament. It didn't make sense. Like their mind was probably racing. Like, who are we? What is this about? It reminds me, when, when I was first starting out in, in uh, ministry, uh, I was invited to go with a friend of mine uh, to a conference. I think it was in Pittsburgh or Pennsylvania somewhere. And we, we took a plane, got there. I didn't really know what I was walking into, but uh, when I got there, I walked into a dinner with about five people. It was me, my friend, and two men that were sitting in that room. It was a guy named Jim Simbla, who's the pastor at Brooklyn Tabernacle here in the city. And then a guy named Warren Wearsby, who is probably the most impactful common, biblical commentary writer of this century. And I'm sitting at a table with five of us there. I mean, this was kind of like my Jewish moment, right? Like the, the Moses and Elijah. Like, I'm like, these are two men. I've read their books. I've read all about them. I, like, I'm sitting at a table with them. And like, I, immediately, so many questions started popping in my mind. And I'm grateful that I had maybe a little bit more wisdom than Peter to just say, I'm just going to sit here and keep my mouth shut. I'm not going to make an idiot of myself. But it was one of those moments like I couldn't wait to, I was experiencing, but I couldn't wait to leave and go tell people about it. Like, guess who I just had dinner with? Like, it was this big moment. And what does Jesus do after this big moment? He tells them not to speak of it. Don't go tell anybody. This moment of perceived greatness that would blow people's minds and create a bigger following, he said, don't speak of it. This wasn't Jesus' defining moment. Even though those close to him thought it was the most important thing that he had probably done to this point. They're like, this is special. This is unique. And Jesus is like, nah, I was just talking to Moses and Elijah. That's it. Now we're going back to the real stuff. This was not the first time Jesus had done this. It was often his command after he healed people to say, go and tell no one. Jesus knew that even though people could tell some great stories about him, What truly defined greatness was not his ability to do miracles or to be transfigured, but it was to love other people. That was his greatness. As we skip forward in the story a little bit, we see that Jesus again has gone away privately with his disciples after performing another major miracle of healing this boy that was deaf, mute, convulsing, and he did it all right in front of the Pharisees, right in front of the religious leaders, another big moment. And instead of like Jesus taking over, And promoting himself, he grabs his disciples and they go off to a private place. Look at it, Mark 9, 30 through 34. And it says, Then they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know that they were there. For he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days he will rise again. This is a pretty monumental thing he's saying, right? He's basically telling them, Guess what? I'm on my way to die. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. They're going to kill me, but I am going to come back in three days. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him what he was talking about, which kind of shows the state of the disciples at this point. Like, let's just not ask him any more questions so we don't look foolish. It says, but, and then verse 32, or verse 33, and then as they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing along the way? Like, I heard you guys back there talking. You obviously weren't listening to my teaching. So what were you guys talking about on the way? And verse 34 says this, But they kept silent, for on the way they had been arguing about with one another about who was the greatest. 
I mean, these guys, do you see? They had this pendulum swing moment here. I mean, just a week ago, they're in a boat arguing over a loaf of bread, trying to forget that Jesus is even in the boat with them. And now they're like following with Jesus. And they're like, all right, this dude's up to something. He's going to be amazing. Which one of us is the greatest among his followers? Which one? Can you imagine what's happening? I mean, Peter's probably like, guys, you, you remember I was the one that walked on water? And they were there for like two seconds. Like, I'm not even sure it counts. Like, you probably sank just like that, but at least you got out of the boat. And James and John are like, you know, we've been able to go around and heal and cast out demons just like Jesus. And I'm sure the other guys were like, well, what about those couple of times that you couldn't do it when Jesus had to show up and come in and save the day? I'm sure they were going back and forth and back and forth. And they had gone, these guys had gone from forgetting about who Jesus was to now working to make sure they were positioning themselves for greatness, for when Jesus eventually became the king and ruler of Jerusalem, Israel, Rome, and all the world. Their pendulum had swung to like not even thinking about Jesus to thinking about their position with Jesus. I would love to have heard those arguments. And Jesus, I love what Jesus does here. He brings it up like he doesn't know. Oh, by the way, what were you guys talking about? along the way. Anybody, anybody want to share? And they do probably what I did, would do. They were a bit ashamed and scared and no one spoke and no one don't up to it, what they'd been doing. Jesus knew. And I love what Jesus does here. Jesus doesn't get angry. He doesn't tell them to get out or get lost. Instead, he does a great thing and he teaches them. He actually teaches them about what greatness means. And today and the rest of our time, I want us to dive into this teaching of Jesus on greatness and see how it might shift our paradigm and understanding of what it means to be truly great in the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is bringing near to us. So let's look at Mark 9, 35 through 37, and this is the teaching of Jesus today. And it says this, And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant to all. And then he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such as the child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me, talking about God. The first thing I want you to see is this. The greatness of Jesus is very practical. It's very practical. I mean, he is, in this teaching right here, he's telling you, here's some things. If you want to be great, you've got to do these things. In these few verses, I want you to see that Jesus literally throws the definition of greatness on his head. He says, if you want to be first, you must be last. By all intents and purposes, this is insanity. It doesn't make sense. Now, we sit here 2,000 years since this teaching has occurred, and we've heard it multiple times in our life. We saw Jesus live it out. We've seen people live it out. But before the disciples, they had never heard anything like this before. For him to equate greatness to the bottom layers of society was incomprehensible. They knew Jesus was different, but now they're like, Jesus, you're just crazy. This is crazy. Jesus here tells his disciples that, guess what? Whichever one of you won that argument that you had along the way, whichever one of you actually figured out you're the greatest, guess what? You just won the sweepstakes to be the servant for all of us. Like You get to serve us. You get to do the cooking, cleaning of the dishes, collecting the cloaks, organizing the sandals. That's what you get to do. The practical nature of what Jesus said was this. Greatness begins with a proper view of other people, of other people, how we view other people. And he uses two groups of people here to describe this story, and it's servants and children. 
Let's talk about servants first. Servants here are not a term that we maybe fully understand today. Becoming a servant wasn't a career path that somebody chose. These aren't butlers and maids that have been trained and working in wealthy households. Servants were mainly indentured servants. They were having to work off for a household to forgive a financial debt or some kind of personal wrongdoing that they had done to someone in that house. A servant was not someone who garnered any kind of respect or admiration. It was a last resort, final option. If you could figure out a way to pay off your debt any other way you did that, if you couldn't, you became a servant of that household. And Jesus said that he wanted us to not only be willing to experience that, but he was telling, if you want to be great, you have to actually choose that. You have to choose that lifestyle. It isn't crazy, the idea of being great is connected to being a servant, but that that's crazy enough, but the idea that we would choose it is what makes it the insane part. Is it's actually something we would embrace, not when it's just pushed on us. See, a lot of times we say, well, let's, let's see how much you really love somebody when you're treated like a servant, like when it's thrust on you. But what Jesus is saying is this. It's not when it's thrust on you. It's when you actually choose to pick it up. It's a choice that you make, that he wanted us to choose to serve others. What Jesus is teaching here is this. True greatness comes from an extravagant and unquenchable love to serve other people. It's not something that will ever go away. It's not one day I'm done. Like I have served other people enough. Today is my day. This year is my year. This season is my season. It is this unquenchable and extravagant love to serve other people for no other reason than to bring joy and blessing into their life. It is a choice to love just love practically, not just theoretically. You know what, man? That's a hard choice. Well, guess what? Being great's hard. Being great's hard. I fell at it all the time. I fell at serving every day. But when I see this play out in my life, when I see people do this for me, when I finally can get rid of my pride and arrogance enough to, to serve others as well, I, experience, I understand what he's teaching here. It's this upside-down mentality of like serving brings joy and peace. But we constantly have to fight culture to do that. So he says, be a servant. But then he says, talks about children. Now, for, again, for us, it may be hard for us to understand the cultural understanding of children here because we live in a culture that places high value on children. We have a government that's developed programs to make sure no child is left behind. We have family activities that are centered around the desires and wishes of kid, kids even as early as two, three, four years old. Where we go, what we do, what we eat, who we socialize with in our culture is very often driven by our children, not the adults of the household. And we're like, please, dear God, can we change that? Can, I, can we go back to that? And this is the complete opposite of the Roman and Jewish culture of the time. It doesn't mean that children weren't valued, you know, and it wasn't even just, well, be seen, not heard. They honestly really didn't count in the family until they hit age 13 and they moved into adulthood. I don't know if you would, holiday season coming up, if you you experienced this and your big family dinners that you maybe had, but there was like the adult table and then there's the kids' table. And the kids' table got certain kind of foods, or they had to wait until the adults got theirs, or, or maybe a, a mom or dad would fix a plate and give it to you at the kids' table. But there were things like you didn't get to touch. There was nice silverware you didn't get to play with. 
There was like cloth napkins over there and paper napkins over here. It was like a different table. In our family, like it was a pretty large family, like you didn't hit the adult table. It wasn't like 13 or 18. Here was like the restriction. You had to get married. Like you had to, like, that was the motivation to get into adulthood. It was like, when you bring somebody to family dinner, you get to move to the adult table. And it was this moment. It was like, I remember like when Katie and I started dating and like first time she came, we'd been dating maybe two months. And I thought, I'm getting, I'm going to go to the adult table. No, we both got stuck at the the kid's table until we got married. So um, a couple of years ago, I was in, I was in Kenya. And uh, when I was out meeting with a group of people, a group of tribesmen, uh, the, the Maasai tribe way out in the bush in Kenya, and we got to talking and there were kids around. And I was asking, oh, what's the child's name? And they told me, we don't name our children until age six to make sure that they survive and are actually can become part of the tribe because they would lose so many children before age Six and I was like, "This is tragic." This is, I mean, culturally, this is what we're dealing with—a culture that had basically said children are not the value that we place on them in our culture today. And this is why Jesus says he literally had to put a child into their midst, which means he had to go and get one. He had to go get a child and bring them to where they were meeting. And when he placed the child on his lap and tells the disciples, "The way that you show love to this child." Is, the, is greatness. It was another unexpected and challenging path. And what he's saying here is true greatness comes from a purposeful and passionate love that invites the people in our culture that have been forgotten into our lives. Those that are forgotten by our culture, those that are on the outside, it's inviting them into our lives. You know what? Our lives are filled with children of the world, people that society forgets, people that the society pushes away, people that society try to keep out of sight. But greatness isn't spending time with those deemed as culturally great. It is instead investing in the lives who have been culturally forgotten. And that's what Jesus was saying. And this is another hard choice. But again, being great is hard. Choosing not to spend time with the influencers, but with those that I can invest in is a major difference. The practical nature of Jesus' teaching is this. Choose to serve others for no reason. Invite the forsaken and the forgotten to be part of your life. Greatness is not about accomplishment. Instead, it's about investment in others. I want to close with this last uh, paragraph of teaching here that Jesus, because he doesn't stop with just the practical nature of it. He actually takes it much deeper. And this is found in Mark 9, 42 to 47. And he says this. So whatever caused one of these little ones, again, he's got a child you're one of these little ones who believes in me to sin. It'd be greater for him if a great millstone was hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes to be thrown into hell. I kind of wish these verses weren't in the Bible. (laughs) These are are tough verses, right? And what Jesus is saying here is, we're about to get very personal about what it means to be great. Imagine you're the disciples. They've just been arguing about who's going to be the greatest and whoever won, Jesus didn't just say, hey, now you get to serve us and you get to be like a child, but now you got to cut off your hand and your feet and pluck out your eye. Be like, okay, I'm not, that's not me. 
And I'm grateful that this is just an illustration that he uses, not an actual command that he gives us to mutilate our bodies. But what he's telling us is this, greatness begins when we have a proper view of how we handle sin in our life, how we handle sin in our life. Sin will always derail our ability to experience greatness in our life. And the first thing that Jesus tells us here is this, don't cause other people to sin. This seems obvious, but yet we struggle with it every day. The word sin in verse 42 42 would actually be better translated is to stumble, causing someone to stumble. Jesus is saying here, do not try to intentionally cause someone to stumble or fall so that you look better than they do. We all are guilty of that. We all fall trapped to wanting others maybe not to be able to do as good as we are, and we put traps and hurdles in their own life to try to make them fall down, to stumble and to fall. And I love what Jesus says here. He says, if you do that, guess what? It's, it'd be better you to have this huge millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. I mean, he's basically talking about, you know, sleeping with the fishes. You know, it's better for you to go, to die now than to deal with the physical and spiritual punishment, the spiritual emotional punishment of causing others to sin. And what he's saying is this. If you propitiate sin in other people's lives, guess what? It will end up causing you just as much harm, if not more. When you cause sin to take root in somebody's life, it is also taking root in your life. It's going to impact you. But the second thing Jesus says here is, if you want to do great, do everything you can to keep yourself from sinning. And he talks about here the cutting off the hand, cutting off the foot, and gouging out the eye. And maybe for us to better understand that is to understand some of the other words in this, because that word hell here doesn't mean this uh, eternal, physical place. That's not the actual word. The word translated here is the word Gehenna, which is an actual physical place in Jerusalem. It was a place that everybody would have known. It was a place with a horrific history. There were kings of Israel of old that used to take and slaughter and massacre and do child sacrifice out there. It was a horrific valley just outside of the walls of Jerusalem. It was a place in Jesus' day that had been turned into the city trash dump. And all, every manner of thing were out there constantly burning. Stray and rabid dogs were out there. It was not a place anybody had a noxious odor if you got close to it. And he was basically saying this, that it would be better for you to lose a hand, lose a foot, lose an eye. Something happened to you that would keep you from getting to Gehenna than to make it there in one piece. It's better for something to happen to you to get you off of that pathway than actually nothing to happen to you and actually get all the way there. And I want to share something with you this morning that will help maybe help you understand sin a little bit better. In my life, most of my life, I've used sin in itself as a punishment, an evil practice that if I embrace it, it would extract its toll on me and my life. It would drain hope, joy, my positive outlook. Stay away from sin. It's bad, evil, and will bring you nothing good. Like if I gave in to sin, sin itself was the punishment. But the truth is this. If we're honest, sin is actually usually pretty fun, isn't it? And that's what makes it tempting. Like it actually tempts us to enjoy something. It trades momentary pleasure for future consequence. It is evil. It will steal your joy, hope, and outlook, but maybe not immediately. 
Instead, what I want you to see today is this. Sin is not a punishment. It is a pathway. It is a pathway to hell. It is a pathway to Gehenna. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. Sin will lead you and others to the most god-awful and forsaken places. Gehenna, that dirty, rotten, smelly, horrific place, is the destination of every sin journey that we choose to take in our lives. It will lead us there. And it is better for something to cause you to stop, pay attention, and bring you pain, move you off of that path, than to do nothing to allow you to go there and just allow you to be there. We have to get intentional in identifying sin and reacting to sin in our life because it is on, it's leading us on a pathway to Gehenna, to that God-forsaken place. If you want to be great, Jesus is saying, get off the pathway to hell, to Gehenna, and instead get on the pathway that's paved with grace, forgiveness, and hope in Christ. It's a rerouting of our direction. It's not just getting this one sin out of my life and like, I'm going to try to not do this anymore and not do that. And that's what we end up doing. We end up cherry picking these sins and we need to stop and say, God, please deal with anything in my life that is putting me on a pathway to Gehenna and reroute me to your grace and your forgiveness. My question for you today is this. After hearing all this, do you want to be great? Do you want to be great? Do you want to choose to serve others out of love? Do you want to invite the forgotten into your life? Do you want to reroute your sinful life from death to forgiveness in life? Those are the accomplishments that lead to greatness. Not doing something, not big conquering moments. It's choosing to serve, inviting the forgotten, and rerouting our lives away from sin toward forgiveness. That's what greatness is. That's how Jesus defined it for his followers. He said, if you want to be great, this is what it is. Will you join me as we pray? Father, I'm so grateful that you answered this question. That you did not leave us wondering. Or just with a cultural understanding of greatness being defined by accomplishment and victory and prosperity but it's out of this ability to choose to love others, to invite others into our life and to reroute ourselves from death and hell. God, help us to make those choices this week, not out of obligation, not out of some sense of guilt and shame, but we get to make those choices because of our desire to experience the fullness of life that you've promised us because you have great things in store for us. Things that we can't even imagine or understand that are part of your plan if we will do those things to live great. God, I know I fail in those choices every day. God, thank you for your gracious nature, just like with the disciples, to teach and remind. And may we take this teaching of you today and begin to live it out in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.